One evening in late January 1998, a call came through to the home of John Hanlon in Juneau, Alaska. John wasn't home, so his son Jimmy answered instead. It was his uncle David on the line, John's brother. Jimmy could hear the concern in his uncle's voice. Usually a man of few words and never one to exaggerate. She's not safe, Jimmy, he said to his nephew. At 48 years old, David Hanlon had spent 34 years of them battling sub-zero temperatures and the wild Alaskan seas as a commercial fisherman, one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. The she he was referring to was the Lacante, a 90-year-old, 70-foot-long fishing trawler built back in 1919. That night, he was due to head out on the vessel as part of a five-person crew. But David had a bad feeling about the trip. This is going to be the last time I sail the Lacante, he said solemnly. Jimmy was a little stunned. It sounded like his uncle was saying he might not make it back alive. Not quite sure what to say in return, Jimmy promised to pass the message on to his father, then say goodbye to his uncle. A few hours after making his call, Hanlon, along with skipper Mark Morley, deck boss William Gig Mork, and deckhands Bob Doyle and Mike DeCapua, rode the Lacante out of the Graves Harbor, just west of Juneau. From there, they headed out toward the icy waters of the Fairweather Grounds, a fish-rich stretch of the Gulf of Alaska. Within days, the region would be hit with some of the worst storm weather in Alaska's history. The crew of the Lacante would unwittingly find themselves at the center of what some have described as the most harrowing and tragic search and rescue mission ever attempted in the state. I'm Donnie Dust, United States Marine Corps veteran and world-renowned survival expert. This is Rescue. Today's episode, Through the Storm We Ride. The small town of Sitka on the southeast coast of Alaska is home to one of the most remote U.S. Coast Guard outposts. Air Station Sitka is small by Coast Guard standards, with three helicopters, 16 pilots, and roughly 70 crew in total. Together, they are responsible for roughly 300 miles of coastline, stretching down from Sitka all the way to the Canadian border. It's a stunningly beautiful place to work, surrounded by spruce forests and backed by jagged snow-capped mountain peaks. It's also one of the most challenging environments in the country. During the winter months, temperatures can plummet well below freezing. Winds can reach up to speeds of 100 miles per hour and blizzards are on a daily occurrence. Back in 1998, for Dan Multhen, one of the 12 rescue helicopter pilots stationed at the base, it was simply home. It takes a different type of person to do what we do. Dan credits his father for instilling him with a love of flying after taking him to see the war film Tora 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 when he was 10. After that, 
There was no looking back. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, but I could feel the, uh, the rumble of the plane starting and taking off and all that. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Dan served 10 years as a pilot in the U.S. Navy, but grew tired of all the time he had to spend away from his wife and kids. I love the Navy. I love the people. I just didn't want to go back out to sea. And we had a little boy, little girl, little boy. Dan transferred over to the Coast Guard and soon found himself stationed in Sitka, Alaska. But to be clear, this was no retirement home. Being a helicopter pilot in Alaska is one of the toughest jobs in the business. You know, going to Alaska, not everybody goes up there. And you kind of have to have a good mindset to go up there and fly because it's the most challenging flying in the world. By 1998, Dan thought he had seen it all, when in the evening of January 30th, two days after the Lacante and its crew set out for the Fairweather grounds, a mayday call is received at the base. It was nighttime, and the weather outside was blowing like crazy, pretty nasty. All we heard was that there was a uh, EPIRB going off somewhere north of us, right off the uh, coast. An EPIRB, or an Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon, is a small handheld device that many boats have on board in case of emergencies. When a boat's in distress, it can be triggered to provide the crew's location to the Coast Guard, and it's lightweight enough for any survivors to keep hold of it if they have to abandon ship. In Dan's experience, more often than not, it gets triggered by accident. That usually doesn't go off. And if it does, it's usually off of a boat where the battery got low and it goes off or fell over. So we're like, well, that's kind of weird. Because the EPIRB isn't yet registered with any vessel, information for Dan and his colleagues is sparse. They have no idea what kind of vessel it belongs to or how many people they might be looking for. All they know is the signal is coming from roughly 50 miles north and 60 miles to the west of Sitka, somewhere in the treacherous Fairweather grounds. A lot of times they don't register the uh, EPIRBs. All we knew was that there was something out there pinging, saying somebody's in, in bad shape. That's about all we had. I don't even think we knew what the boat's name was. A local weather station close to where the signal is coming from is reporting 60 mile per hour winds and water temperatures of 38 degrees Fahrenheit with waves of around 25 feet high. A person in the water wearing a survival suit in those conditions can likely survive the elements for at least three hours if conditions don't change. But there are no guarantees at sea. Or as some sailors say, the sea won't judge you, but it won't forgive you either. All that Dan and his colleagues know is that if there is anybody out there, they are their only hope. We go out when a lot of other people won't go. You know, where most people, most pilots will go, hell no, I'm not going out there. Are you crazy? And I'm like, yeah, 
I guess we got, everybody's a little crazy. We're going into the unknown. We had no idea what the weather was going to be out there. But, you know, that's what we trained for. That's what we're used to. What's the old saying? You have to go, but you don't have to come back. I, I didn't go by that. It's in Alaska. You get more used to the weather and you go, yeah, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go check it out. We just knew that we we're going to have a heck of a tailwind going there and not sure what to expect. Dan and his team raced to their helicopter and prepared to take off. Joining him, Aircraft Commander Lieutenant William Addix, or Bill, Dan's co-pilot. Flight Engineer Sean Witherspoon, whose job it will be to operate the rescue hoist should they find anyone, and rescue swimmer Richard Sanson. Everybody has a different job. The rescue swimmer's getting his stuff ready, the flight mechanic's checking stuff. Bill was in the left seat, and that's usually the guy who navigates. My job was to keep us out of the water. Before they can leave, the team make their final checks. Once you get in the helicopter, you're going through checklists, going through this and that, just trying to get the plane started safe. So you're checking the hoist. We have a de-ice and anti-ice. We're checking all those systems, make sure the engines are good. We're checking all our gauges. I think they give us checklists to keep our minds off what's actually going to happen. You're worried about the weather. You also worry about, is the aircraft going to function correctly? You know, the aircraft could break any time. I've lost 10 people from my Naval Academy class in aircraft accidents. We lost three within the first two years in training. So those are probably the biggest things you worry about. And then finally we're ready to go. Despite the dangers of the mission, there is no time to say goodbye to loved ones. Usually it's for the best, both for them and the crew. I never called them. They usually don't know. I got three kids at home and a wife and you just have to get them out of your mind. Once you get going, you're so focused on what you're going to do and all that. We got a mission to do. More after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. With everything ready, Dan starts up the chopper and the team prepare to head out into the unknown. The base is sheltered from the worst storm weather by nearby Mount Edgecombe. So from where they're sitting, things don't look too bad. 30 knot winds, you know, rain. The weather wasn't that bad. We're like, okay, we can do this. Let's get going. Not long after takeoff, as the chopper flies past Mount Edgecombe, everything changes. The weather switched right, pretty much right when we got out of uh, Sick of Sound, right around Edgecombe. 
and all of a sudden it's like, holy smokes, we got a heck of a tailwind here. I think we had a, God, almost a hundred knot tailwind, which is just crazy because we're flying 125 knots in our little bubble. And then we have a hundred knots pushing us. We're getting jostled around a lot. With heavy cloud cover and only the dark waters of the Gulf of Alaska stretching out beneath them, it's also pitch black. Darkness always makes it 10 times worse. And the wind is like nothing else. It's propelling them forward, but also barreling into them from all sides, playing with the seven-ton helicopter like a leaf. We're getting jostled really bad. It's gusty. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's not like a steady, it's gusting. It really shakes you around. It's the worst I've seen, it's the worst we've all seen. Unlike usual, I wasn't saying hardly anything. I was just trying to focus on these gauges because we weren't really far off the water. I think we were only three or 400 feet off the water. That's water that Dan can't even see. All he can do is rely on the gauges to make sure they don't get too low. We also have things in um, Alaska, they're called willy-waws. It's just a downburst. When we flew inland, we would see areas where a willy-wall or one of those big downbursts came on land. And it just, it looked like a bomb went off on the trees. It just flattened all the trees out. When you're at 300 feet, you don't have any time to recover. So you're like, well, crap. If that happens, it's like, it's all over. You have no control over that. Just about anything could go wrong. As Dan concentrates on getting them to the location, Lieutenant Addicts tries to contact Sitka to update them on the situation. The signal is nothing but static. They are completely on their own. Bill is navigating and he's trying to get in touch with people to talk to, which we couldn't. The rescue swimmer is sitting over there. He's trying to call people on the radio too. As the senior member of the team, Lieutenant Addicts takes it upon himself to keep the rest of the crew calm as the weather intensifies. He's talking to the uh, flight mech and the rescue swimmer in the back just to make things you know, a little bit easier and not as stressful because we were getting the heck beat out of us. Flight mech in the back, he's got his basket kind of ready just in case they need that. The rescue basket is about three feet long and two feet wide and is connected to the hoist cable. If anyone needs rescuing from the water, this is how they will do it. Dropping the basket into the water and literally scooping them up. Before long, the team are approaching the site of the Mayday signal. They are now contending with 140 mile per hour winds, sleet and snow. Visibility is virtually zero. We're screaming up there. So we got up there pretty quick, but it's just really bouncing and then the rain started going. I think we might have had some snow. I don't know, I wasn't looking outside. My focus is right on the gauges right there. We had night vision goggles, but they were useless because if you turned on the light in front, it just light up all the rain. 
and that rain would just blot out your goggles. So we just put the goggles up and we couldn't do that. We're getting bounced up and down a lot. I was just thinking about keeping the aircraft out of the water. My whole mind was just like, please, you, you know, just, I'm just gonna keep going. You know, I just gotta keep focusing, keeping us out of the water, keeping it 300 feet and going. As we went farther and the weather got worse and worse and worse, you know, we're like, boy, man, I hope nobody's in that water. Dan switches on the searchlight. And for the first time, he gets a glimpse of the watery hell churning viciously beneath him. Gigantic swells reaching 100 feet high. Dan feels sick at the thought that anyone might be down there. 50 minutes after leaving Sitka, the crew are fast approaching the EPIRB signal point. Before they know it, they have shot way past it. It takes them the best part of half an hour, flying against the howling gale to get back to it. Then, one of the crew spots something, reflecting back at them from the water. So we're flying out there. You couldn't hardly see the water. It was so bad. And so as we're going, I think I turned the searchlight on and we saw the reflective tape from the water. I looked down real quick and I'm like, oh my God, there's people in the water. Rescue swimmer Richard Sanson and flight mechanic Sean Witherspoon throw out three saltwater flares. They fizzle into life the moment they hit the water and light up the area. There are four men in total that seem to be roped together. Somehow, all appear to be alive as they are tossed about on the enormous waves. There is no sign of their boat. They're just floating in the water. They're in a survival suit. We call them Gumby suits because it covers your whole body you know, with real thick neoprene that you get in and it has reflective tape on it. One guy was holding the EPIRB and they were just all clumped together. My first reaction was, well, we gotta get the swimmers, let's dress the swimmer. And I'm like, why did I say that? We're not putting the swimmer down there. If we put him down there, it's not gonna happen. It's hard enough trying to keep the chopper over the men, but now Dan has to get down to 100 feet if they're going to have a chance of reaching them. All the while, the water beneath them is constantly rising up and down, 50 to 100 feet at a time. To compensate, the chopper's autopilot moves the helicopter up and down with it, or else they get swallowed up by the sea. We're sitting there trying to hold 100 feet, looking down at the water. I'm trying to keep those guys in my sight. We don't want to lose them, but the waves are sending them over here. So I'm trying to, you know, go back and forth and there is nothing to see outside. It was just too dark and rainy. What I was trying to do is get the spotlight on them and it was just impossible. With the waves rising so far and fast beneath him, 
it's impossible to keep the chopper steady in tandem with the autopilot. Dan has no choice but to take control himself. It was just a seat of the pants flying right then, just watching it. You know, and all of a sudden your nose would pitch up and then it would pitch down and then you'd, you'd be all over the place. One moment the waves are 100 feet below them. The next, they are rushing up fast toward them. Dan has to shoot up to avoid it. If anything hits, especially your tail rotor, if your tail rotor goes, you're done. You can't fly anymore. You're just going to spin. In that situation, it's just too bad. And there's nobody there to get you. You're going to die. Flight mechanic Sean Witherspoon starts preparing to send out the basket. He opens up the door and it's like, all heck just broke loose. And in the meantime, nobody knows where we are or what we're doing or they think we've crashed. Back at Sitka, Dan's colleague, Steve Torpy, is at home and off duty when he gets a call from the airbase. My wife and I were home. It was about nine o'clock at night. Carrie had just found out that she was pregnant with our first child. So we were just kind of sitting there having a quiet Friday night. I got a call and it was the air station and they asked me if I could come in and take over the, the duty. We've bagged the crew. That's the term for when a crew has flown beyond their safe time limit and have to RTB, return to base. I assumed this crew was was bagged and they were calling me in and I was just gonna go in and take over the ready. So I said goodbye to my wife, Carrie, and I said, I'll be back you know, in the morning. I drove into the air station and the air station was just a buzz with activity. So clearly something was going on. A good friend of mine, uh, Guy Pierce was behind the desk and he was frantic trying to figure out what just happened to the first helicopter. The first crew isn't bagged as Steve had thought. And as far as Air Station Sitka believes, they are completely lost or possibly dead. A commercial airline had overheard an attempted call from the missing helicopter a airline had misinterpreted a call from that from the first helicopter that said they were making an approach to the water the aircraft interpreted that as they were crashing into the water a second rescue helicopter is quickly dispatched to try and complete the mission in truth dan and the rest of his team are very much alive and fighting furiously to stay that way, while also battling to save the survivors in the deadly waters beneath them. I don't care if anybody knows where we are right now. We need to live, we need to get these guys out of the water. It was horrible because you really couldn't tell where the ocean stopped, where the, where the sky started, and all this rain and everything coming at you. I'm having the hardest time just trying to keep them close enough. Flight mechanic Sean Witherspoon prepares to deploy the basket as he is flung about in the back of the helicopter. 
he's doing all the work. He's setting things up and he's getting bounced around. He's got that door open and all that's keeping him inside is a strap that goes around his waist that's uh, hooked into something on the opposite side of the aircraft so he won't fall out. Finally, they're ready to attempt to hoist. Sean's back there pulling the basket out and hooking it up. He's on his knees. He cannot stand up in the back of that helicopter. So he's moving around, hooking it up, getting it ready to go. He's working his butt off. And then at the same time, he's getting blown all around. So he's really having to you know, keep his, his position in the helicopter. And he's looking just out at wind and everything. And you can kind of see the guys in the water. No longer able to feel his hands in the freezing winds, Sean pushes the basket out and starts to lower it. But the moment it drops into the wind, it flings back toward the tail of the aircraft. Usually the basket goes down, you know, pretty straight down or an angle. It's, it's just shooting straight back with the winds. I'd never seen anything before like that. I think we got the basket in the water a couple times, but it just wasn't working out. The weather was just too bad. For an hour, Sean fights desperately to get the basket down to the men. At this range, he can see them, see the fear and hope in their eyes as they are pummeled time and time again by enormous waves, submerging them for minutes at a time under the water. But it's no good. More after the break. Sean started getting a little sick. And that's when we pulled off and took a break. Sean is dehydrated and completely exhausted. I had my lucky water bottle. Bill got the bottle and gave it to Sean so he could drink something. And then he threw up all over it. So it wasn't my lucky water bottle anymore. After a short time, Sean feels well enough to start hoisting again. But then... I'm looking out, and I can't tell the sky from the ocean. So I see the people in the water. They started moving away. So, of course, I start hovering, you know, try to get closer to them, thinking, hey, they're going to be way out. So they keep moving away and moving away, and I, I, I go, something just felt weird. What they were actually doing, they were going up the side of a wave. So instead of me looking down, I was actually looking straight out at them. And next thing you know, they disappear. I'm like, what the heck? Dan realizes with utter terror that the chopper is now below the men in the water. A huge rogue wave towers above the helicopter about to engulf them. Next thing I know, the flight mech stopped talking and the rescue swimmer yelled, up, up, up. That wave was coming crashing down on us. Bill and I both started pulling the heck out of the collective and as we're coming up, I see the top of the wave just almost hit our wheel. If it wasn't for our swimmer yelling that out, we'd probably be at the bottom of the ocean up there. Dead as doornails. Sean had seen it too, staring out the door. 
how the water had rushed up to within only a few feet of the belly of the aircraft. Sean actually went into shock. When he saw that wave almost hit us, it was just too much for the guy, which I don't blame him. And so he's out, he's out. He's out of the picture now. So now Rick, our rescue swimmer, he's taking care of Sean now. And we're like, we're done. We can't do any more. Dan and the rest of the crew know there is nothing more they can do. They are completely spent. They make the sickening decision to turn back and leave the four desperate men once more alone in the darkness. I was thinking about what they thought. I'm sure they were thinking, well, I guess it's not, it's, it's not to be. As aviators, we're, we want to get the job done. You know, there's always a way to get the job done. And now we don't have our flight mechanic. And it's just, things are against us. All sorts of things go through your mind. What if we could have done this? What if we did that? What if, what if? And there's no, it's not a what if. It didn't happen. You could what if yourself to death like that. It's a horrible feeling. The ride back is a hard one. It was just really quiet and like kind of morose in the aircraft, but we kept talking. That's what we do to keep other everybody's mind on things. More than anything, no one can get the image of that wave out of their minds and how close they came to dying. I'm like, I'm done. You know, I'm never flying again. I don't know why Montana popped into my head, but I said, I'm moving to Montana. I'm just going to go farm or do whatever they do up in Montana. I never want to fly again. I just want to get home safe, land, and that's it. And I think that was in all our minds. But at the same time, you're thinking, I got to get home first, though. And that's when we saw the other aircraft coming out. Seeing the second helicopter appear suddenly from out of the darkness heading toward them, is a jolting reminder that the mission is still ongoing. We finally got in touch with them and they said, hey, great, you're alive. I'm like, yeah, it's good to be alive, but man, you got a crap storm back behind you. That's not gonna be fun. Dan and co-pilot Bill Addicts take the moment to try and impart as much info as they can to give the others a better chance of getting to the men. Just the facts, not like, oh, it was horrible. You know, we both got killed, you know, and it's impossible. It's horrible. It was just like, fact, 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 fact. We gave him the position and I go, this is what to expect. There's four to five people in the water. They're in survival suits. The weather's horrible. We said, if you have some weight, maybe you can put it in your basket. They told them about the wave too. You know, we told them about our situation going in with the wave coming up and them going over the back of it and not seeing them. And they were on, actually looking down at us. I couldn't see the other crew, but I could hear their voice like, holy crap, what did we get ourselves into? Just like with the first helicopter, the second team also failed to rescue the men. Despite all their expertise and dedication to the cause, the conditions are just too difficult. But the Coast Guard are not yet ready to give up. It has been hours since the Mayday signal was received, and against all the odds, the survivors 
still appear to be alive. They have one helicopter left. Rescue pilot Steve Torpy and his co-pilot, Captain Theodore Lefevre, are told to prepare themselves for takeoff. Guy Pierce started to brief me and Captain Lefevre, my co-pilot, on what was going on. While he's briefing, I was starting to get a sense that this was going to be a very difficult night. Knowing that the other two helicopters had not succeeded was almost incomprehensible to me. How can this be so hard that that two crews of very competent people uh, couldn't do it? I remember putting my hands in my pockets so that no one would start to see them shake because this had never happened before, a case like this. I'd never seen this occur and it was really shaping up to be something um, something big. Shortly before Steve is due to leave, Dan Moulton and his team finally arrive back at the base. We actually had an ambulance waiting, and that's the first time that ever happened when they take away one of your crew members. That was real hard to see Sean being taken away in the uh, ambulance. Steve is on the runway watching it all unfold. That was a rather discomforting sight while we're sitting there waiting to go, watching an aircraft unload one of its crew members into, straight into a ambulance. Lieutenant Bill Addicts, Dan's aircraft commander, gave Steve the lowdown on what to expect. We had a few minutes to talk as he was shutting down. Uh, bear in mind, he had just put, been put through the ringer. He was exhausted himself. His co-pilot, Dan Moulton, was exhausted. The crew was completely wiped, and one of them, which was getting to an ambulance. So he told us it's, it's big, waves are huge, it's blowing 80, 80 knots, maybe more. That was enough. I mean, that was enough to, for me to know that this is going to be a, a mad minute out there. It's going to be crazy. The wonderful thing about being third is I had the benefit of what they learned. I had a feeling we had to do something different. Firstly, they bring sandbags to prevent the basket from flailing about in the wind. They also take more flares and glow sticks to keep track on how close the water is to the helicopter. We had enough glow sticks to make it look like a Christmas tree. They also took more personnel and fuel. So we had myself, Captain Lefevre, Fred Colt, who was our flight mechanic and hoist operator. We had Lee Honnold, who was another hoist operator and flight mechanic, and Mike Fish, which is a rescue swimmer. Much like Dan, Steve has no interest in telling his wife, who is pregnant at home with their first child, what he's about to go and do. Not a chance. I would never tell my wife I'm going to go do something like this. Not a chance. You know, and in fact, I didn't even think about it. If I found my mind wandering like that, I would scold myself for doing it because it's counterproductive. It does not help me live through this night. I didn't think once about what was going on at home or anything else 
It was just about how to go out there, do the very best you can. I just didn't want to screw it up. I mean, that was what I was thinking about most is don't mess this up. Knowing that the first crew had got there and the second crew had got there, I thought I could still get there and maybe, maybe something might change. It's hard to imagine that all this time, four men, men no doubt with family and loved ones of their own, had been floating 60 miles offshore in near freezing waters in the thick of a once in a generation storm. And they have seen not one, but two rescue helicopters come out to save them, only to then have to watch them both turn back and leave. With their bodies bound together, they cling to each other and life as hard as they can. As one 10 story high wave after another pummels into them sending them corkscrewing through the water before thrusting them back up, choking and spluttering for air, just when it seems they have taken their last breath. But Steve knows it acutely, and he knows he and his team are their last hope. He prays they will still be alive by the time they get out to them. Then together, he and his crew lift up into the howling night air. Join us next time for the concluding part of Rescue, Episode 14, Through the Storm We Ride. You've been listening to Rescue with Donnie Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hassabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. Thanks to Ellie Lazaridis for additional production support. Thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, then do check out other Sony podcasts. 